You're listening to Policy Room by SPRF. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Policy Room. At the wake of the pandemic, Prime Minister Narendra Modi addressed the Indian Chamber of Commerce, where he first spoke about Atmanirbhar Bharat, which will make the country self-reliant. While the government has been stressing on Swadeshi and Make in India for some time now, it hasn't been particularly successful in its implementation. The COVID-19 pandemic, however, has had an unprecedented impact on the economy, demanding an immediate reconsideration of the existing neoliberal models of growth, and also reinstating the need for the government to put immediate emphasis on truly becoming more vocal for local and also ensuring self-reliance at the grassroots level. Given this context, Today, we will be examining the significance of localization in the present scenario where the country is plagued with economic and ecological crisis. I'm Sumeha, a research assistant at the Social and Political Research Foundation. And today with us, we have Mr. Ashish Kothari. Mr. Kothari is a founder member of Pune-based NGO, Kalpavriksh. He has coordinated India's national biodiversity strategy and has also been on multiple government committees, including the National Wildlife Action Plan and Biodiversity Action Plan. Having been part of many people's movements, including the Narmada Bachao Andolan, he now helps coordinate the Vikalp Sangam to network development alternatives in India. Welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you. Um, So to start off with today's discussion, could you define the term localization for our listeners? And then also maybe delve into how it has been adopted across geographies. Sure. Um, There are two very important aspects of localization, and especially in uh, contrast to the kind of uh, globalization that we've had in the last few decades. One is the economic, which is where uh, what we're trying to argue is that people need to be, need to have self-reliance, at least for basic needs, things like food and water and energy and housing and Uh, health and education and so on, rather than be dependent on uh, global forces, whether they are governmental or corporate, which is unfortunately what globalization has done, made us dependent on very long distance uh, exchanges, very long distance uh, services and goods. And as we've seen in the COVID period, when something like this uh, is no longer possible, then local economies also suffer. People don't have enough food or they don't have enough water or energy or other basic needs. So one is the economic self-reliance at the local level. Local doesn't necessarily mean every single village. It could be a cluster of 20, 30 villages. It could be 10, 15 villages with a small town, uh, et cetera. But it is geographically localized. The second crucial part of localization is the power of decision-making. Now, we have a form of democracy, not just in India, but most parts of the world, where we go to elections once in five years or four years, And then we hope that the government that is elected into power will do the right things for us. Now, as we know, this doesn't necessarily happen. Um, Whereas in many parts of the world, including in some parts of India, people are saying that where we are, we are the government, at least as far as uh, decisions that are important for our lives, whether they're to do with our own local governance or with our local nature and natural resources or our society that we should be the ones at the center of decision-making, which is really the true spirit of the uh, 73rd and 74th amendments to the Indian constitution, 
which were about bodies of self-governance, but unfortunately have not really been properly implemented. So localization is both political and economic. It needs to go hand in hand with other things, which I'll speak about uh, maybe a little later. Right. Uh, thank you for explaining that. Um, but then how significant do you think that this concept of localization is in the current context where we have seen that the pandemic has exposed some of the most gaping issues in the neoliberal strategies that were adopted by the state? And do you also think that in a way the pandemic has perhaps provided momentum to the process of localization in India? Well, it has certainly exposed the as you're saying exposed the the hollowness of the policies of both uh, nationalization and globalization see where people were dependent on long distance uh, livelihoods and jobs we've seen for instance what happened with uh, uh, migrant labor and casual labor and uh, during the first uh, wave of the pandemic and leading up to the second wave uh, probably something like 25 to 30 million indians were rendered poorer than they were earlier because of all these issues. On the other hand, uh, we have documented as part of the Vikalp Sangam process uh, helped by Kalpavriksh, we've documented several dozen stories of where communities were resilient to the COVID crisis in terms of food, health, livelihoods, etc., because they had sustained or revived or created new forms of localized economy and decision making. I'll just give you a couple of quick examples. Uh, something like 70 to 75 villages in Telangana where the uh, Dalit women farmers movement called the Deccan Development Society has been active. They not only had no case of uh, COVID in the first uh, wave, but were completely food self-sufficient because they had switched 25 years back to their own local seeds, their own local water, their own local local knowledge and local exchanges, seed gra um, grain banks, etc., etc in these villages so there was nobody going hungry in fact they were providing food relief to uh, the district administration um, another example is from northeast northeast network again a women's uh, network which has been able to sustain the traditional rice cropping and shifting cultivation patterns in, in parts of nagaland and they too did not suffer any serious crisis with regard to these sorts of basic needs so uh, the clear lessons to this is that in these kind of crises, and mind you, these kind of crises will come time and again, especially with more viruses, with climate, with financial collapses, etc. Um, the only way communities are able to sustain is if they are resilient with regard to their own local ecosystems, local production patterns, local exchanges, consumer-producer relations, which are uh, more or less in, in a localized uh, area. Now, this is the clear lesson the government should have picked up and started supporting in the recovery package, the so-called Atmanirbhar Bharat package. They should have been supporting these kind of initiatives, this kind of localization, and also a very clear community control over local natural ecosystems. This is another big lesson. So, for instance, where in central India, such as in Gatchiroli district of Maharashtra, Adivasis have been able to claim community forest rights under the Forest Rights Act um, over uh, their surrounding forests. They were able to sustain themselves during the COVID period much better than where uh, the forests are still in the control of the, of the government, the forest department. And so another clear lesson is provide 
full rights to the local communities over their commons, over their common resources. So it could be forests, it could be water, uh, rivers, lakes, coastal areas, mountain areas, whatever. Wherever people are dependent for their livelihoods, those commons need to be in the control of the local communities, the Gram Sabhas or the, uh, even in cities, the urban wards uh, is what uh, is, is another very clear lesson from the COVID pandemic. Right. So, I mean, since you mentioned the Northeast network, I think it's sort of important to bring up how, uh, so the practice of shifting cultivation in general has been a very, like, it's it's been in place for years, for centuries now. And the basic tenets of the practice involve common sharing of land, usage of traditional seeds and seeds from previous harvests. So in general, it's a very, like, sustainable practice. And it's also sustainable for the region's geography. However, we see that the policies that are in place sort of erode uh, the practice and make it very unsustainable because the Indian government has been pushing for monoculture in the region. It has been pushing for, for oil palm plantations and also standing agriculture. So then we see that there's this massive contradiction, right? The people are have these initiatives in place which um, help them support themselves, but the government, the policies in place sort of erode. So that sort of drives me to my next question, that what strategies do you think that the state must adopt to create an enabling policy environment for these uh, sort of alternatives that you mentioned, for these alternatives to flourish? Yeah, I think one thing that we have to realize is that attack on practices such as shifting cultivation or June and also things like nomadic pastoralism, which is the other one that has been severely uh, disprivileged, um, is, is both a cultural attack and an economic attack. Uh, cultural because during colonial times, the British came in with the view that these sorts of practices are primitive, unsustainable, outmoded, and they need to be replaced with settled agriculture or settled pastoralism or industry or whatever. And this, unfortunately, even after independence, is something that it's an attitude that the, that the government of India also sustained. The Forest Department, for instance, always argued that shifting cultivation was destructive to the environment, whereas, as you have very rightly said, it was a uh, resilient and sustainable response to uh, fragile ecosystems. Now, it is also true that in some areas, because of various factors, shifting cultivation or nomadic pastoralism has become somewhat unsustainable, uh, but that is also because of the kind of policies of restricting their movement, uh, policies of uh, deliberate settling, etc., that has caused this. So um, you're also right that one of the other policy directions taken by the government has been extremely destructive, which is monocultures, both of crops and of livestock, the introduction of hybrids, the introduction of uh, uh, crossbreeds and so on. Now, the kind of enabling policy we would need to sustain, uh, firstly, to revive the sustainability of uh, jhum and pastoralism and traditional uh, farming practices and so on, um, and secondly, to, uh, to, to bring them back where they have been abandoned, lost, and have been replaced by commercialized monocultures. Uh, the, the enabling policies would would involve three or four things. One, I've already mentioned to you, uh, community control over, uh, over the commons. They could be uh, forest commons, agricultural commons, water commons, uh, and knowledge commons also. Second, 
instead of uh, enormous subsidies to monocultures and chemical fertilizers and so on there needs to be a uh, government support to organic and to biologically diverse uh, forms of cultivation and pastoralism and traditional uh, livelihoods and linking them to non-agricultural livelihoods such as crafts which is always traditionally also there's there was a lot of these kind of linkages but that's been lost so creating actually vibrant local economies that are diversified in their base um, which are dependent on and sustaining the local uh, natural ecosystems and natural resources and which are building on the knowledge system of the local communities to which one can add uh, other knowledge systems modern science and technology as relevant but not to displace them and think of them as being primitive etc so these are the sorts of things that would need to go into policy shifts but these are very big shifts some state governments have been uh, better more progressive in providing this kind of support but in general uh, the central government and most state governments have not really uh, provided this kind of an enabling policy environment in fact most of the policy environment is counterproductive it is regressive it actually uh, 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 encourages and forces people to move towards unsustainable patterns of production right um that does make a lot of sense so yeah so um circling back to like our conversation on the alternative initiatives that you mentioned um i just wanted to ask uh, what aspects of the economy do you think can and should be localized and which aspects should be left to globalization yeah um so i think what's very important absolutely important is that all or most basic needs need to be localized now in basic needs there are of course like i mentioned there's food and water energy and uh, housing and clothing and so on and there's a, there's really no reason why they cannot be produced in a certain localized uh, region uh, even household goods you know like soaps and detergents and and things that one is using in one's daily life uh, recently there was a study done by a village called kunaria in uh, kutch which which did some fantastic work in being resilient with regard to livelihoods and health during the covid pandemic and they did a survey uh, and they found that something like uh, every month the village was spending 40 lakh rupees on daily household items every month and uh, the sarpanch and the panchayat there was actually telling us saying that why should we not produce most of this stuff uh, within a certain Uh, within the village and a certain geographical radius around us maybe 20 villages get together and produce the soap and the footwear and everything that we use in our house why should we uh, buy all these things from uh, you know corporations which are just profit making so um this this kind of uh, uh, this this would be the first um, let's say mandate for for uh, for localization self reliant with regard to basic needs beyond that you know if you want coffee from south india or if you want something which grows very well only in one part of india or one part of the world that's fine that that can still be exchanged uh, that can still be traded but that exchange and trade should not be at the cost of that local self reliance that is the most important part of this um, if for instance we want i don't know kiwis from new zealand fine let them come but that should not be at the, at the expense of local self reliance in growing our own fruits and our own vegetables um and the other uh, crucial thing with the, with globalization is that the 
positive globalization that we've had for thousands of years is cultural exchanges, even material exchanges. You know, mangoes have gone from here to uh, Brazil, uh, Chile, which we all think of as being Indian, has come from uh, South America to, to India, etc. So the, these are, you know, long drawn out exchanges that have taken place, cultures, languages, food, cuisines, all kinds of things. That kind of globalization is fine. What the problem is where financial and economic globalization that tends to put more and more economic power in the hands of a, of a handful of people in government or in private corporations, and it tends to undermine the self-sufficiency and self-reliance of local communities. That is the globalization one has to fight against. Right. So making the economies in the local communities more and more uh, economically empowered would be the way to go, right? Absolutely, which also means that we have to we have to then uh, also challenge the the structures and relations of economic concentration in the hands of private corporations in capitalist societies, or in the hands of uh, centralized governments in state dominated or statism societies, as we call them. So that kind of concentrate. So the economic power uh, or the control over economic production and consumption needs to be in the hands of those who are the real producers and the consumers. Um, and very often, of course, producers and consumers are the same. So, for instance, industrial production should be in the hands of, say, worker cooperatives. And there are many examples around the world of that. Um, agricultural production should be in the hands of farmers, especially small farmers and including uh, special uh, attention to women who, who do most of the work on farm uh, on, on farms in India, um, and uh, and so on and so forth. Crafts uh, need to be in the hands of of actual craft persons. Unfortunately, we have an economy in which the actual controls for a lot of these things lie in the hands of those who don't really work. They own the capital, or they they have they are in government. They don't actually put in the hard work; it's put in by workers. But then they run away with the profits and that is something that has to be challenged right so i believe there are a bunch of uh, alternative initiatives currently in india which are well being um, regulated by say women farmers or worker cooperatives like you mentioned so could you like maybe take us through the story of some of these initiatives and how you know while working at the intersection of nature and community they have also been combating the current crisis that has prevailed that is prevailing in the country sure let me give you maybe examples from three four different sectors so we know that it's it's possible not just in one area and, and different parts of india so i've already mentioned two to you and let me give slight more elaboration to them the the dalit women farmers in telangana under the deccan development society as i said about 75 villages about 5000 women they um, turned from being uh, extremely uh, you know uh, i mean having uh, deprivations of various kinds hunger malnutrition lack of access to schools and health facilities, etc, uh, etc. Et you know, the usual thing that Dalit families and especially Dalit women face across India. From that to kind of mobilizing themselves, uh, forming women's sanghas in each of the villages and then the federation, which is the DDS, Second Development Society, and turning back to their traditional crops, especially millets, uh, jwar and bajra and ragi and so on, local rice varieties, local pulses, etc and um, completely to organic farming 
sharing seeds with the women who had lost them, didn't have them anymore, creating grain banks in every village so that people had easy access to seeds to, to plant, um, linking the local foods with the public distribution system so that people had uh, nutritious organic local food to buy in the PDS in the parallel public distribution system and um, and so on and so forth. I, it's a very long story, I won't go on and on. But basically through all of this, they were able to become not just food secure, which is to say enough food in their houses, but also what they call food sovereign. That is food sovereignty means complete control over everything to do with food, no dependence on anybody outside. Um, they have also then moved into things like community radio station, community filmmaking, and many other aspects of transforming their lives as uh, women and as Dalits into much more uh, people who are much more respected in, in their own villages. Um, second example I've given you is Northeast Network. It's a similar story, so I won't uh, go into more detail there, except of course a very different cultural context in, in, uh, in Nagaland um, and different uh, cultivation patterns and so on, but otherwise a similar story. A third example that I can give you is from uh, Kutch, which is interesting because it's a craft-based uh, story where handloom weaving has been a traditional craft and then that suffered a very severe decline because of various reasons including the fact that uh, the Indian government has always supported mass industrial production of textiles rather than uh, handmade and handloom and so there was uh, it was collapsing then in 2005 2006 uh, some of the local weavers and an organization called Khamir they got together and did some innovations based on a local organic cotton um, called Kala cotton and they produced they actually created a market of products uh, for con of consumers who wanted to have organic cotton wanted to have nice nicely hand woven uh, and often even hand spun cloth and because of that uh, handloom weaving has significantly revived and has brought back a number of young people including young men who had gone off to work in the gulf or in nearby industries, uh, you know, Tata, Adani, etc. They've actually come back into handloom weaving. And when we asked them, we did a two year long study with them. And when we asked them why, they said, well, we are earning better, but also we are able to be in control of our own time. We are able to express our creativity, unlike what we were doing in an industrial labor job. Uh, we are sitting with our family and working. Um, we are continuing the heritage of our own community, the Kachi brand of uh, of cloths etc and uh, so on so it was like a very interesting mixed narrative of cultural social economic uh, sort of uh, motivations for coming into this kind of a livelihood so that's the third third example maybe i'll give you a very quick example from a urban area because that's also something that is important we do have cities cities are collapsing in various different ways so again back to Kutch the example is from the uh, district headquarters Bhuj now Bhuj is not a very big city it's got about 250,000 people and it's burgeoning it's exploding um, so uh, there is a program called homes in the city run by five or six local NGOs with the uh, with the municipal corporation also involved and they have been working in uh, the colonies of Bhuj both the poor colonies and the richer colonies and trying to create uh, much more 
self-reliance with regard to basic needs like water and energy and housing etc but also create a sense of how urban citizens can be much more a central part of decision making with regard to the city's planning the budget etc and um, trying to kind of bring uh, you know the the i mentioned earlier the 74th amendment to the indian constitution which was to do with urban local self governance to actually try and implement that on the ground uh, and also uh, look at issues like uh, reviving lakes uh, bringing wildlife back into the city etc so a sort of a combination of economic social cultural and ecological um, revivals along with political empowerment all right so how can these visions models and practical embodiments of an alternative economic future become more widespread in a country like india um essentially how do we scale these up to a broader societal level yeah one of the uh, important lessons we have learned is that india is such a diverse country in terms of uh, ecological conditions economic social political cultural conditions that the idea of either scaling up or replicating uh, doesn't necessarily work but what we advocate is what we call scaling out or outscaling which means to learn the key processes and lessons and values and ethics of any successful initiative and then try uh, those out use those to try it out in one's own uh, context so uh, to to do that so which basically means you know thousands and thousands of initiatives across the country and then to network them in a way that they create scale so just to give an example supposing there are a thousand uh, natural or organic or biologically diverse farming initiatives in uh, south india and if they all are able to network with each other exchange and create a uh, a group for collaboration and for advocacy then they might also be able to change the the macro policy situation or to shift many more thousands of farmers into that kind of farming by giving them inspiration and lessons and collaborating with them so that's what we call sort of outscaling uh, rather than upscaling or replication um the other important thing here would be um apart from this kind of networking and collaboration and so on uh, is to advocate for policy shifts like i said earlier so for instance instead of uh, uh, tens of thousands of crores of rupees going into chemical fertilizers if there could be a shift to supporting organic and biodiverse farming then many more farmers would be able to shift because especially with small farmers it's not so easy for them to shift if they've already taken to chemical based uh, agriculture it's not so easy for them to shift quickly because there is a loss of production initially and things like that so a little bit of uh, subsidy or a little bit of support at that stage would help a lot uh, and uh, in a maybe 4 5 6 years they could also then become self reliant and not need the subsidy anymore that's the kind of policy shift we would need we would also of course need policy shifts which uh, discourage corporate takeover of agriculture and uh, the grabbing of farming land and forest land and so on uh, in the name of in, uh, industrialization and development because we are losing huge amounts of lands for these sorts of purposes and now the kind of uh, policies and laws that the government is bringing in including the three 
agriculture laws against which farmers have been agitating for many months. Uh, they are unfortunately trying to hand things over into the private corporate sector more and more. So policy is actually becoming more regressive. We need we need the, the, a different direction altogether in which the maximum support is to the small farmer, is to the women farmer, and is also to independent farmer producer companies and cooperatives which are able to bring many farmers together to create some kind of a uh, critical mass for them to negotiate with the market and with the government so if we have these sorts of things we'll be able to outscale much more uh, effectively much more much faster compared to what we have the situation we have right now also a third important factor would be consumer behavior so people like us who you know we eat food we 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 drink water and other drinks we uh, consume electricity etc etc if we are able to support these small scale producers for instance directly uh, tying up with uh, organic farmers around us uh, near our city or wherever we are living and creating consumer producer linkages and uh, advocating for farmers markets in our neighborhoods etc or if we are uh, able to support much more handmade production, handlooms, et cetera, rather than buying for, from big industries. So our own consumer behavior changing, consumer, what foods we eat, where we get them from, who we buy them from, who we support, those become very important parts of also the, uh, the transformation as uh, you know, millions of consumers changing their behavior would also cause quite a significant shift. Right. Um... I think this shift in behavior is one of the most essential points that we need to keep highlighting. However, in light of, I mean, capitalism's very deeply institutionalized character, I think it's sort of like a difficult collective challenge to, you know, uh, figure out a way out of this because these capitalistic values are very deeply entrenched in our society. So to just overcome that is a challenge for our generation. But I hope we can do that and contribute more to these local economies, especially the people yeah. from urban areas. Yeah. Yeah, I think there are a number of things that can be done. I know it's a very difficult challenge. And I also know that it's very difficult because of the kind of uh, advertising industry we have, which which uh, brainwashes us into thinking, you know, into uh, they tell us what's good for us rather than us trying to figure it out ourselves. And um, it this happens right from childhood. No, children are are targeted the most and so we need we need to be able to tackle the advertising industry uh, to become much more ethical in its in its practice we need to be able to uh, build these things into the education system into the curricula uh, just to give you an example i think right from childhood the lessons uh, in in schools and in schools or at home or whatever should also be telling us that if we are going to buy a let's say a packet of chips um, where does it come from? Who's growing it? Where does it go when we throw out the packet? What does it do to the environment? Who is it affecting, benefiting, and who is losing out? If that kind of knowledge, that kind of information was provided to us whenever we buy something or consume something as children, as young people, as adults, uh, then at least for some of us, it would probably make an impact and we might be more careful in what we are doing. I used to do an exercise in... in uh, in a nature club that I used to take in a school in Delhi many years back, 
in which we would look at what all has gone into the garbage uh, bin, the, the uh, waste paper bin in the classroom. We would kind of then look at it, we would analyze it, where does it come from, where is, going, where is it going to end up. And it was quite remarkable because a lot of children would then ask questions and then they would say, oh, maybe we should be more careful about consuming this. Maybe we, we don't have to eat uh, you know, this particular kind of brand or whatever. So there would be some, some, some kind of uh, uh, different consciousness that gets raised. But it's these sorts of exercises that need to get built into the education system, into our homes, into any kind of uh, uh, creation of uh, awareness uh, anywhere. Even, for instance, in our transportation systems. You know, if we take a bus or a, or a train or an uh, airplane, none of us really know the, the consequences of that travel, where we are going through, what we are going, what kind of landscapes we are going through, what impacts we are having. All of this could actually be built into public education and learning systems. And it's not very expensive also. And it would create a massive um, impact. Right. So there's definitely like a need for an overall reform of the current Indian education system. And, making, and there's also a need for making it more inclusive and you know, just teaching these students from a very young age about adopting these practices. Um, that sort of brings me to my last question to you. You have been working on the process of Vikalp Sangam for a while now. So how do you think has Vikalp Sangam been aiding the process of localization? And what are the next steps that the collective is planning on adopting? Well, uh, the main reason we started the Vikalp Sangam process in 2017 was that we felt the need for a a platform and a, and a systematic concerted attempt at trying to document and bring out the stories of transformation that are taking place across India. Because there was no such platform. We do have uh, national level platforms for uh, movements that are struggling against destructive development projects such as the National Alliance for People's Movement. We have national networks on particular sectors like for sustainable agriculture, there is ASHA, now there is the National Coalition for uh, Organic, for uh, Natural Farming and others. But there is no, there was no cross-sectoral platform focusing predominantly on alternatives. And that's why Vikalp Sangam was created. Um, and, and the reason we called it Vikalp Sangam and was that it's, it's, a, it's like a confluence, not a conference. It's not like a talk shop. Uh, it's an attempt to try and, as I said, bring together different movements, groups, individuals who are working on these sorts of issues and to learn from each other across sectors. If you're working on sustainable agriculture, for instance, and I'm working on community health, how do we learn from each other so that my health programs build in, uh, say, food and your agriculture programs talk about uh, the health benefits of uh, organic food? So that and then also bring in issues of uh, uh, gender inequality casteism etc you know the, the different kinds of inequalities and injustices that we have in, in in india so bringing all of these together with four or five objectives one sharing stories and learning from each other secondly actively collaborating to take our work further uh, with each other third um, joint visioning of the kind of society we need you know collective uh, uh, if I might be bold enough to say collective dreaming of the kind of uh, India that we want and then 
Uh, fourth would be strategizing on, on how we get there. Uh, and fifth would be advocacy for policy shifts uh, of the kind that I've, that I've mentioned. We have been doing uh, different kinds of activities. We've had physical confluences, about 20, 21 of them. Of course, in the last one and a half years, it's not been possible, but uh, till January 2020, we were doing these physical confluences and we hope to have more coming up. In fact, uh, next month, probably one in Ladakh. Um, we have these confluences are either for particular states and geographies or they are on particular themes like food, energy, democracy, etc. Then we've been doing a lot of documentation of stories. And as I said earlier, we have got 1600, 1700 stories that are on the Vikalp Sangam uh, website. Uh, many commissioned by us but or written by us, but also many that are just picked up from wherever we can. Quite shamelessly, we just pick up from newspapers or magazines or other organizations and put them in, of course, with due credit, because we feel that we need a single source where lots of these uh, positive uh, stories of transformation are available. Um, also, a lot of filming, more than 100 uh, short films are available now on these alternatives. Uh, we're beginning to do things like podcasts. We, In the last one and a half years, we've also done many, many webinars where these people can bring out their own stories in a national or global, uh, to a national or global audience, especially stories uh, of uh, grassroots initiatives. So that's another program that's been happening. And then we've become quite active also on various media platforms, trying to do outreach of these uh, stories. So more and more people get to know about them, they can support them, they can get inspired to try out their own things. There's a parallel, uh, I mean, along in the youth, in the, sorry, in the Vikalp Sangam process, there is an ongoing youth Vikalp Sangam uh, initiative, and uh, they've done a number of confluences and other kinds of events. Um, so uh, I think that's very important because young people uh, in India and elsewhere need to really come up with their own perspectives, their own visions of the future, their own actions, their own, uh, you know, changes in behavior, etc. So this is a process I think that also we, we hope that a lot more young people can get into uh, both in terms of resisting the current system, but also creating or supporting alternatives in various sectors in various parts of the country. Uh, and finally, Vikalp Sangam has also led to a global platform with similar initiatives in other parts of the world called the Global Tapestry of Alternatives which is uh, with the very similar objectives of trying to bring together movements and organizations and individuals working on radical alternatives all over the world. So that's it. Um, it's very hard to say if we've been able to effectively shift things. Uh, it's maybe a bit too early. Uh, as we know, we're fighting against very, very powerful forces. Uh, but one of the things that has certainly happened is much more sharing and inspiration and collaboration, which has led to a number of newer or more stronger initiatives in different parts of India. I don't think uh, uh, so far we've been able to shift the macro picture, but, and, and I don't think Vikalp Sangam on its own can do it also. We have to align with lots of other similar uh, national and global networks and, and movements, which we are doing, but we do hope that over the next few years, that will also happen more and more. Thank you so much, sir. Um, this podcast has definitely been super insightful and very interesting stories have come up about the various uh, initiatives that you spoke about. And I really hope that we can drive the important lessons that 
from all of these initiatives and inculcate those in our work as well thank you so much for your time sir we at sprf truly value it see you next time thank you for tuning into another episode of policy room produced by the social and political research foundation SPRF is a youth-oriented public policy think tank based in New Delhi, working to spark dialogues for a better democracy. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon.